Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. Oh, I'm Louise Palanker. I forgot my line. Thanks for showing up. <laughs> you know, time we like to send our listeners down another media path to discover something may they might not have otherwise discovered without our suggestion. So what do you have to share this week? Oh, so I read a book called Defending Jacob, and it is a psychological legal thriller about a district attorney who finds himself on the other side of the courtroom when his son is accused of murder. It explores the lengths we will go to protect our children and whether those very extremes may make it impossible to actually see our children and save them. And so the reason I read this book is that I saw that it was turned into a miniseries on Apple, the Apple streaming service. And I like to read the book before I watch the movie, but this is eight episodes. I thought it was a movie, but it's like, it's a commitment. So, um, my husband and I gorged this over the weekend. The miniseries stars Chris Evans, Michelle Dockery, and Jaden Martell. And uh, it takes some different twists in the book, but we found it to be extraordinary. Although, suspend your disbelief because Chris Evans looks a lot more like an actor than a lawyer. Your husband's a lawyer. Did he uh, like, the, did, did he give it credibility? Yeah, but my husband's a prosecutor. Uh, and he'll, when we watch anything legal, he'll just spew all these legal details about what would really be happening. I wish I could give you a quote of like, that sidebar would be uh, convened. Uh. So I'll hit the pause button. I'll say, explain. But he loved it. So he thought it was very fascinating. It's, it's, it's quite a thriller. The, they did a tremendous job and the acting, the acting is, the young man who plays Jacob is really extraordinary. So if you have the Apple streaming service, or if you'd like to get it just to watch this, I, I, I can highly recommend it. Sounds really good. Well, you know, I love music documentaries. That's my passion. I recommended the Frank Sinatra for all or nothing at all. One last week when we were talking about Tom, uh, some of my faves lately have been the Laurel Canyon documentary, the two parter about this Laurel Canyon, uh, uh, era in music making, which is like a mile from my house. So I had some geographical investment in this thing. The David Crosby documentary was awesome. The Linda Ronstadt film was one of the best. And, and this time I wanted to recommend a new film about Gordon Lightfoot. Now, it's called Gordon Lightfoot, If You Could Read My Mind, which was the title of his biggest hit. And when I was a DJ in radio, he was huge. They had The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was a, a number one hit. The, the song Sundown, along with If You Could Read My Mind, that was his biggest hit. Now, Boomers know and love this guy. He's one of Canada's most celebrated singer-songwriters, and this film proves how important he has been to Canadian culture in general. Bob Dylan said he was one of the greatest songwriters ever. There are interviews in this film from other noted Canadians like Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman of the Guess Who, the band members of Rush, Anne Murray, all the famous Canadians, and they all kind of laud him as maybe the greatest Canadian musical asset. He's got a beautiful voice, gorgeous words, great music history, and I just highly recommend it. It's really wonderful. Even if you're not a huge fan of his, it puts him in musical history, which is great. And there's a good chance that our guest today, one of my faves, may have opened for him. I'll ask him, I don't know. Anyway, other than Lou Boudreau, shortstop for the Cleveland Indians, this man is the most famous person to come out of Harvey, Illinois. He's been one of America's top stand-up comics for 50 years. He started his comedy career as half of the only black and white comedy team in America with Tim Reed. They were Tim and Tom. 
And of course, Tim went on to become a very successful actor and director and producer. And there's a book about them, which is fascinating, called Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white. It talks about a black and white comedy team working the Chitlin circuit and all the danger fraught in that. Tom's open for most of the greatest acts in show business, including Smokey Robinson and Liza Minnelli and Sammy Davis Jr. I think, and he'll tell me if I'm wrong about this, he holds the record for the number of Tonight Show stand-up appearances at 60. Is that a record, Tom? No, I think uh, Rodney did more than, David Brenner certainly did more than me, and, and so did, um, I think Joan Rivers was close. I don't well, know. you were close for a while. Anyway, <laughs> I'll get to you in a minute. Hang on. But the top of the top came when he spent many years opening for Frank Sinatra. And he has the most amazing show business anecdotes about Frank. Even more important than that, he was one of the pivotal characters in the history of the comedy store, which included a strike that changed the entire business of stand-up. We're going to talk about that. His one-man show about opening for Frank Sinatra, the man who made Sinatra laugh. His newest book, Tom Dreesen, Still Standing, is doing great. There's an hysterical forward by David Letterman. And I will say it's more than a show business autobiography. It's about starting your life in severe poverty, working your way to the top of show business, but when you get there, unlike many stars, you never stop appreciating what you have. I always respected that about Tom. It's refreshing and rare, and he's been a friend of both Wheezy and mine for many years, Tom Dreesen. We're so happy to talk to you today, my friend. Thank you, Fritz. I, I, I just can't follow that introduction. I'm going to have to say goodbye. I know. We don't have any more time. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Good night. but laughs> that was a great introduction. Thank you. That's a, that's a spectacular painting behind us. A man named Marcelo Nira from Buenos Aires captured this painting, and I have it hanging in my living room, so I'm using it now as a backdrop for Zoom interviews. But um, he, every night when I would uh, finish my show in Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City, when we were casinos, I, when I'd say goodnight, everybody, as I would exit stage right, Frank would enter stage right. We would crisscross. Frank would get to center stage, and he'd turn around while the orchestra's vamping, He'd say, Tommy Dreesen, come back, Tommy. Come back and take another bow. There he is. There's my man. And I would take what they call a half bow and, and come out. And that's what Marcelo captured in this painting where Frank calls me back out to take another bow. And, uh, and I just am so appreciative of it. You know. Describe your life in Harvey, Illinois. It, it was a tough existence. You were one of eight kids. You had parents that liked to drink. You had real headwinds growing up back there. Describe your life in Harvey. Yeah, Harvey, Illinois is a suburb on the south side of Chicago, um, a blue collar town in those days of steel mills and f factories everywhere. They, they made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts. Uh, and it had 36 taverns in the town where all the, the blue collar people would go to the bars after the, the eight hour shifts and stuff like that. And, um, and we, there were eight in my neighborhood uh, taverns and my mother was a bartender and my father frequented all 36 taverns at some point in his life. And, uh, but I, I, I lived in a shack. We had <clears throat> eight kids, as you pointed out. Uh, it was a, a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. There was no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. If a, if a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. If you got holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in it. You know? And the, the book is basically about me as a little boy with my shoeshine box, trudging through the snow every night, shining shoes in all the taverns, trying to make money to help feed my brothers and sisters. While on my hands and knees in those taverns, Frank Sinatra was on in every jukebox, of course, in those days. And, and so it's the first time I, this eight-year-old boy heard Frank Sinatra's voice. He was eight years old. And the book takes you to that little boy 
from Harvey, Illinois, one day carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So it takes you on the journey. Wow. You know, and, and all the hardships in between, as you pointed out, Tim Reed and I be America's first black and white comedy team. But even before that, my years in the military, uh, coming home, the struggle, struggles I had when I came back home and, and, uh, and then the, be getting in show business by accident. I never dreamed I'd be in show business. You know, and, and, uh, and then the black white comedy team touring the North and the South before there were ever any comedy clubs in, in, in America. So we worked what you called the, 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 what you called the Chitlin Circuit, affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit. Black-owned, black-operated nightclubs. And we worked all white nightclubs, too. But the dues we had to pay in those days, because no one had ever seen a black guy and a white guy on stage together as a comedy team, you know. So all the dues and then the, the, the team breaking up and, 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 and uh, you know, going out, coming out here on the West Coast and struggling. My wife, you know, wrote me three dear Johns. She hated show business. <laughs> Did not want me in show business. But how I brought the family back together again and, and kept this fight up. Uh, and, and thus the title, Still Standing. I've been knocked down a lot in my life. And if you read the book, you know, physically knocked down. And, and yet I kept getting back up again. And, and I'm still a stand-up comic after 50 years. There's a quote in the book, Tom, where uh, you quote a guy saying, I don't want to have to fight Dreesen because even though I could whip his ass, I will have to continue whipping his ass every day because he won't stop coming back. Do you think that people who survive that type of crushing childhood come to their adult life with this incredible tenacity and drive and sense of purpose because they have they have done way harder work you know as an eight-year-old yeah I, it either it will it'll make you stronger or destroy you you know you, you, if you've been knocked down a lot in your life it, 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 that it's going to make you tougher or you're going to throw the towel in some somewhere and and become a heavy drinker or drugs or or just consider yourself a victim you know, I, uh, I think Fritz knows, and I think, you know, we see, I give motivation speeches all around the country um, on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I talk to students a lot about, don't let them tell you you're a victim. You're a victor. You were born a victor. And, and, and I'll, I'll, we, we have time, so I'll make this analogy. I tell everybody, and I do this in my nightclub act sometimes. Now, I was giving a motivation talk up in Northern California to a group of young guys, <clears throat> all, all male college. And I, I said to them, I was talking about, at that time, you remember this um, guy wouldn't leave his family's home. He's 32 years old. His parents, it took him eight years to get him out of the house. You know, he, they had to go to court to get his butt out of the house. So I was saying, how long do you think you should live with your mom and dad? And one boy raised his hand. He said, till we're 50 or 60. And I said, really? And how many of you agree? And a lot of the other boys raised their hand. I said, why do you say that? He said, because we didn't ask to be here. And I said, how many of you believe that? And a lot of kids raised their hand. I said, you didn't ask to be here. I said, I don't want to give you a biology lesson, but when the male and the female make love, from the male comes five million seeds. Did you know that? Two and a half million die instantly. The other millions die along the way. And soon there's only 100,000 seeds left. Then there's 50,000. Then there's about 100 seeds left. Now we only got five seeds left. Four, three, two, one, you. You. Don't ever tell me you didn't ask to be here. Bullshit. You fought to be here. <laughs> Wow. I'm in a room awesome. full of winners. I, see I want to ask you to send it to me written. I'm going to use that. That's fantastic. <laughs> you were uh, one of eight kids, and you've admitted that the start of developing your humor, whatever it turned out to be, was in trying to entertain your younger brothers and sisters to take their mind off of what was going on in the house. Yeah, I, I always in, in, enjoyed hearing the sound of laughter. In fact, the, the ending of my book. 
is a, a poem that I wrote years ago. I'm not going to do it for you, but <clears throat> I wrote it like in 20 minutes one time after I appeared at Caesar's Palace for the first time in Las Vegas. But the opening line is, as far back as I can remember or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. And even as a little boy, I love to hear that sound of laughter. When I was shining shoes in all the bars, <clears throat> my mother was a bartender and, and I'd go to her tavern uh, where she tended bar last because my uncle owned a tavern and he would tell jokes behind the bar. And I found it so fascinating that here, this man with his vocabulary, his inflection, could cause this sound to come out of everybody's mouth in, in the bar and out of their body. And it filled the room like electricity and, and it united everybody. I just found that fascinating that he could do that. And I would tell his jokes, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, mind you. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so, yeah, I like making my brothers and sisters laugh uh, and like cheering them up and, and uh, you know, and even making my mom laugh. And, and you know, uh, so it's just hearing the sound of laughter. I never thought I'd ever be a comedian, but uh, even as a young kid, I was prone to that and, and drawn to the sound of laughter. But in addition to your tenacity, because I think there's two really important ingredient, ingredients for success, no matter what, what base you start on. But in addition to your tenacity, there's the, the guy you want in the trenches with you. There's this likability quotient, and you, you've always had that. And I, I think it's what leads to your, you know, your, your bromance with Mr. Sinatra. It was you needed him, he needed you, and you're that guy that everybody wants in the trenches. That's very nice. You know, funny you say that when I served in the Navy four years, I also served in the Marine Corps unit for nine months called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. And my our DI one time said to me, after nine months of really, really foot in your rear end training, you know, uh, he said to me, Dreesen, the rest of your life, you'll judge every man you meet by what I want to be in a foxhole with him. That's how you're going to judge everybody. If, if the shit hits the fan, do I want him? Do I want him to have my back? You know, and, and, and it's so funny because that's how I think. And with Frank and I, 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 I like you saying that Frank needed me, but I don't know that Frank Sinatra needed me. Uh, I, I did the job that he wanted me to do. I opened up the, his shows. I set the audience up for him. I knew exactly what he wanted of me. I was fortunate when I met Frank Sinatra. I had already toured with Sammy Davis Jr. for three years, with Smokey Robbins, with Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight in the Pips, with, uh, you know, Frankie Avalon, for all these people I, I had, had a background, and I had already done about 40 Tonight Shows at that time, and so I had experience. Uh, but but he, he wanted that kind of an act, and when I first met him, um, I made up my mind that uh, I was never going to let him know how much in awe of him I was. I picked up on that, that he didn't need another fan. He had millions of fans. He wanted a pal. He wanted somebody that, you know, to hang with, and so I, I picked up on that, and, and you know how many times I wanted to say to him, Frank, when you run from her to eternity, God, what a film. Hey, Frank, when you dance with Gene Kelly, but I didn't, I didn't do that, even though I wanted to sometimes. You know? And by the time uh, I toured with my, first he was the boss of the tour, then he became a, a pal. And at the end of his life, he came like, became like a father to me. Which and is we, what you needed. You needed that because, I mean, I don't want to give away what happens in the book, but you were a fatherless boy <laughs> to a certain extent. Uh, maybe the whole village was your dad because, you know, the way that you guys ran around the village, but... Uh, Frank really filled that role for you. He listened. Yeah, he was. You know, it's interesting you say that, We see, And Fritz, you might, you might think about this. I, first of all, 85% of all stand-up comedians I've met in my life, this is my humble opinion, 85% of all stand-up comedians are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved, wrecks, total wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to tell a joke, I know how to write a joke, and I know how to tell a joke. 
I like to think I'm in the latter, but never trust somebody that tells you they're sane. But anyhow, <laughs> I one time did, was going to write a magazine article. <clears throat> they, they asked me to write a magazine article about what stand-up comedians might have in common. And I started asking all my comedy friends, including Johnny Carson, um, you know, from, from Johnny Dark and George Miller and Dave Letterman and, and Don Rickles and all these comedians I knew. Did your father ever tell you he loved you? Did your father ever put his arms around you, hug you, and say, you know, I love you, son. I'm really proud of you. I could not find one comedian no, I that had that experience. As well. My yeah. father was on his deathbed, and he wouldn't let me hug him in the hospital. It made him uncomfortable. There you go. Yeah. Now, so, now, now by the way, you may, you may have found the same survey with bartenders. I don't know. But I was thinking that maybe sometimes that laughter, that full of laughter, is, it, is the father's love. I don't know. Is, it, is there an emptiness in us? I don't know. That's the way I look at it. I, people ask me why you do it, and I say it's, it's, it's a father thing probably uh, for me to go out and seek the love I didn't think I got by trying to communicate and be affectionate with 100 strangers in the dark is its own psychosis. It's probably about my father. Yeah, it, it, I, I, anyway, again, uh, it's kind of interesting that what, what makes a, a man or a woman go out in front of audiences and strangers and risk the chance that they're not going to like you because they have to like you to laugh at you. Right. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it's start out that way. I, let me digress. And, and I don't mean pat myself on the back, but Fritz, I want to, you, you, you'll understand this. If I said to you opening for Frank Sinatra, this is what it's like, by the way. And, and the first time I opened for him at Nassau Coliseum, see, but I say, Fritz, you're going to open now for Frank Sinatra. I say, Fritz, it's five minutes before you're going on. There's 20,000 people in that arena, Fritz, and they're not in front of you, proscenium. They're all around you. You're in the center of 20,000 people in this arena. Fritz, I want you to go out there, and for the next 45 minutes, I want you to hold their attention. Oh, one more thing, Fritz. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for the next 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Fritz. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no special lighting, no orchestra, nothing but you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Fritz, not one of them came to see you. <laughs> now, who would even attempt such a Have thing? Have fun. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what, it was, that, that's what we do. That's what you would have done, Fritz. And, and, you've got, and you've been doing it for years. But I mean, when you're throwing that challenge, that's what you do. You go out there and you're saying, I want you to like me and I want you to laugh with me, you know. And, so who, I'm interested that, in, uh, you mentioned Pat Henry, but who were the other guys in the course of his career who opened for Mr. Sinatra? And did he have that same buddy romance feeling of family with them that he had? With he, 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 Pat Henry was, uh, I, I was with Frank longer than Pat. I was with Frank 14 years. Pat was at about 12. And he really liked Pat. It, it, the only problem he had with Pat was, and that's why he wanted me, uh, Pat had passed away by, by the time I went with him, but he wanted me because he wanted someone who could change the material. Pat never changed his act in 20 years and for, we we you we appeared in the same cities every year so frank wanted somebody who could keep coming up with new material and as, as you pointed out earlier i did 61 appearances on the tonight show and every time you did the tonight show you had to do a new six minutes so you had to keep coming up with new material fritz as you know what that's all about and you too we see but uh so that's what frank wanted now he had charlie callis for a while now charlie callis uh relied on facial expressions so if you're working in the round, like I just described, the people behind Charlie couldn't see the facial expressions, you know. Um, Jackie Gale did it for a little while. There were some comedians that did it short while, Jan Murray for a couple of times.
But uh, I, I stayed with him the longest, on stage with him. I think the guy from the New York Times once said that I was on the stage with Frank Sinatra more than any other artist uh, throughout his career. Wow, that's pretty impressive. I've read a lot about Sammy Davis Jr., just to switch to Sammy for a moment. Um, and you were there at a historic moment in his life right after the, the Nixon hug, where maybe the African-American community wasn't feeling too favorably towards him. Can you describe that moment? Because I just I'm reading the book and I'm like, oh, my God, Tommy was there. That's the single greatest. I've been in show business for 50 years. I've watched I've opened for some of the greatest artists and I've seen performance after performance. I never saw anything like this. Tim Reed and I were a comedy team then when we were working the Black Expo in Chicago. Um, uh, and so it, it was a, a, all day of, of African-American culture and art a week. And then it culminated in a big show of 15,000 people in an arena. And, um, and each artist, it, it, The Temptations, the OJs, the Smokey Robinson, uh, the Dells from Harvey, Illinois, my, my buddies, it, 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 each act coming on doing three, four songs and going on. You know, Sammy Davis, had come in, flown 3,500 miles to come in to do this show. He flew the Red Eye in. Uh, this is way back in, in the like early 70s. And um, anyhow, he, he, four months before that, he went to the White House and President Nixon gave him an award and, and offered, uh, was going to do something for the black community. So when he, when he said that, Sammy hugged him. Well, when Sammy hugged the president, uh, President Nixon, a lot of pictures were taken and it went on the cover of Jet magazine, the cover of Ebony, and Sammy became persona non grata in the black community because uh, they were at that time very anti-Nixon. So this is the first time he's appearing now in front of a black audience since that picture. So um, now he, 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 when we're all backstage in the wings, Tim and I, they, when they wanted to use a comedian, they'd say, we're going to strike the stage, get up and do five minutes, you know, whoever was there. We waited about six hours before we got up there, but I didn't mind because I'm watching all these great acts and I was doing show business and, you know, watching the people I just adored. And all of a sudden, everybody buzzed backstage. Buzz, what's going on? Sammy Davis Jr., Sammy Davis Jr., never going on. Sammy came back with his entourage, and the MC goes up, and like, ladies and gentlemen, blah, 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 blah. Welcome, please, Sammy Davis Jr. And the crowd began to boo and cheer and boo. And Sammy went center stage, and his conductor, George Rhodes, had the headphones on, and the conductor was, you know, try, trying to stop the music to, you know, try, Sammy was trying to get the music out of the drowned out the boos, but then conductor couldn't hear because of the deafening boos. And finally, Sammy just stood there and they stood up and they're screaming, get off the stage, you Uncle Tom, MF, you white man's N-word. They were screaming at him, you know. And all of us backstage got knots in our stomach. The great Sammy Davis Jr. in front of his, his people being booed and jeered this great. And we just, and Sammy wouldn't leave the stage. He stood there. He stood there and the boos kept going and booed. And finally, the MC came back out and said, ladies and gentlemen, you know, what is our our fight all about, our struggle all about. If it isn't about that we can be a Catholic, a Protestant, a Jew, a Democrat, a Republican, this is not what we're fighting for, individual freedom. This man came 3,500 miles, flew all night long to sing for you. Doesn't he at least deserve to be heard? Mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble. Everybody sat down, sat down. And Sammy went over and changed his sheet music. And he sang one song. And he got a standing ovation. He sang, I Gotta Be Me. And he sang that song like it was never sung before. Whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me. I'll go it alone if that's how it must be. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. Now, halfway through the song, we could see, do you see what he's doing? He's getting, you could feel him getting that crowd back. And in the end, 
they stood and cheered and cheered and cheered. In respect to the black community, they said, we still don't believe your politics, but that was a bitch right there. You know, my point of that whole thing is, is that other performers would have said, you know, Bafa, I'm out of here. You know, Sammy Davis is a street guy. He said, okay, you showed me what you got. Now let me show you what I got. I, in my years in the business, I have never seen an artist. I've seen people take a hostile crowd in an hour and a half, get them back or in a whole show. I've never seen anybody take a hostile crowd and then one song get a standing ovation. To this day, that's the greatest single performance I've ever seen anybody do. God bless Sammy Davis Jr. He was, he was one of my, uh, my teachers too. And, and I, I, I miss him every right. day. Right, he was the first uh, really big name that you opened for, is that correct? Yes. And, and well, well, I once opened for Fritz Coleman. Um, did you? Yeah. Did you and, find and, him to be a little surly? Fritz, you know, I've, I've been searching for 50 years if I could find one person who dislikes Fritz. <laughs> <laughs> He's the most lovable guy in the business. I, I will have to concur with that. We had a power blackout in my neighborhood, guys. I just got it back on. I'm so sorry. Oh, really? You missed the whole Sammy story? I missed the whole Sammy story. The power went out in my whole neighborhood. More, I, I love the Zoom call and everything, but my air conditioning stopped and I'm pissed. <laughs> anyway, no, continue. You and Frank were in each other's lives. I believe things happen for a reason. I don't know if you believe in fate, Tom, or if you just believe we're sort of like, you know, all kind of cast adrift <laughs> in this thing called life. But I believe that some things happen for a reason. And it feels like when you read the book, it feels like you two were in each other's lives for, for a reason and that you taught him a lot and he taught you a lot. Could you kind of like elaborate on what you, what you learned from him and what you think hopefully he learned from you? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know that he learned anything from me. I'd like to think that I've made his life, I, I made him laugh a lot and I love making him laugh. Cause I mean, obviously his name, nickname is Oh Blue Eyes, but I never saw eyes that blue in my whole life. They were crystal blue. And when you made them laugh, they lit up. They just lit up and I, I used to love to make him laugh. It, it just made me feel so good. And learning from him, I learned so many things from Frank Sinatra. He, he, just had, he just had lived such an incredible life. You had to be very careful around him if you were his friend. You couldn't say, gee, I love that watch. He'd take it off and give it to you. You couldn't say, oh, what a beautiful painting. He'd take it off the wall and hand it to you. He, he, he had to be very careful. We were coming out of the Waldorf Astoria one night in New York City on our way to do a gig. And we exited out the back door because if Frank went out the front, he'd be mobbed. And there was a limo waiting there and security was rushing us into the limo when a woman jumped out of the doorway and the doorman told me she had been there for like five hours. And she said, screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, Mr. Sinatra, please, please. And he got to the car and he turned around and the security was holding her back. And he walked back out and he said, I'm sorry, what is it? She said, Mr. Sinatra, my husband is home very, very ill, very ill. And, and if I could get an autograph from you, it would mean the world to him. He said, sure. And he's signing the autograph. And she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. And they were really, really expensive cufflinks, well over $1,000 cufflinks. <clears throat> and he said, thank you. So when he finished the autograph, he took the cufflinks off and handed them to her and said, give these to your husband. She said, oh, no, no, I didn't want them. She said, I just was admiring them. He said, oh, I want your husband to have them. Now we get in the car. I said, Frank, that was beautiful. But why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. And he said, it's, it's like, he said, Aristotle Onassis, <clears throat> Tommy, had billions of dollars. He had mansions and private jets and yachts. And the second he died, they all transferred. Nothing we have is ours. We're only using it. 
And he not only talked that talk, he walked that talk, you know. Uh, he taught me so many things. I'll tell you, uh, you did, uh, you were part of, you were the through line in a great documentary about Frank called Frank Sinatra's Palm Springs. And I just wanted to watch it because I was doing a gig somewhere and I like documentaries. But you were the through line. And I was so touched. And this goes back to Wheezy's point about you guys being made for one another. Another thing that proves Wheezy's point right is you made a connection between life in Harvey, Illinois and life in Hoboken, New Jersey, which was where he was raised. And there was continuity in what that taught you both about blue collar life and about the working man. And it gave you both the soul. And that was sort of a connection you had. But anyway, this documentary, you talked about what it was like to be at the Sinatra place down there and everything. But the part that really touched me was when you guys would go out in the car for a drive alone at night, and then it was not a boss and an employee, it was two friends. And he opened up to you, and it was obvious he needed your simpatico. He needed you as, a, as like a personal private sounding board. It was really touching to hear that, hear that story. When, when, you know, like I told you, Frank never knew how much in awe of him I was because I didn't let him see that side. But he never went to bed till the sun came up. Whether we were on the road or off the road, he, when the sun came up, Frank went to bed. He was nocturnal. So I would stay at his house down in Rancho Mirage. I mean, it's his compound, you know, and um, it's a huge compound on Frank Sinatra Drive that had a security gate. And then when you go in inside, there's a big main house where he stayed, swimming pools, tennis courts. Um, but the outer bungalow, outer perimeter was all bungalows called New York, New York, Strangers in a Night, Tender Trap, My Way, named after songs. And his house kids were just the biggest names in children's. But he would come and get me some nights at 3 or 3 30 in the morning on the bungalow and say, let's take a ride, Tommy. And we'd ride around the desert till the sun came up. And when I got alone in a car with him those nights, I was a kid from Harvey, Illinois, and he was a kid from Hoboken. I don't have a degree from academia, but I've got a doctorate from the streets. And Frank Sinatra was the same way. We had that, that, that thing in common. I had three children, girl, boy, girl. He had three children, girl, boy, girl. I'm half Sicilian. He was half Sicilian. You know, I'm half Irish and half Sicilian. Frank used to always tell me, he said, Tommy, Sicilians don't cry in public, they cry alone. I said, but I'm half Irish. He said, well, Irish cry when they change bus drivers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when we get alone in, that, in the car like that, that, that's, that was some such wonderful, marvelous moments where he would open up toward the end of his life, especially he got a little more melancholy. He talked about his mom and his dad, and, you know, and, uh, and, and what some of the things that in his life that he, that he will never forget, you know, and, and, and yet he, you know, in the end, I really believe that he had accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish 10 times over, you know, and, and, you know, he was going out doing shows till he was 80 years old because everywhere Frank Sinatra used to go, his fans, his music was the soundtrack of their lives. You know, his, they, they went steady to his music, you know, when somebody loves you, it's, mm -hmm. they, they got married to his music, you know, love and marriage, they got <clears throat> divorced to his music, you know, sitting in that bar. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place. It, it, then they got remarried. Love is lovelier the second time around. You know, <clears throat> his music was a soundtrack of their life. So um, he, they needed him out there. But in the end of the, the, the career, when I was with him, he started to need them as much as they used to need him. You know, and, and I could see it moments before he went on stage. This guy, 78, 79 years old, 
20,000 people in the arena, you'd have to leave him alone before he went on. And then he would pace and pace. And then he looked like this old guy. God, he, he really should be home visiting with his grandchildren. And then he'd work, walk out there and the light would hit him and 20 years would fall off his face. Come fly with me. Let's fly away. And he was young again. And, and, uh, and, and it just was a joy to see that, to see that, that need he had for them. Yeah. <laughs> do you believe in anything, do you, where we go after we go, do you get any messages from Mr. S? You know, it's funny you say that, that, that um, I, I, you know, I, I, I have dreams <clears throat> every now and then about him where he's saying something to me and, and, and laughing. And, and, and it's funny, I had another friend that I love dearly named Dennis Farina. Dennis Farina and I were, he was like a brother to me. You used to hang out at the improv with him all the time. I met him through you. Yeah, he was such a wonderful guy. And he died and, and a while back. I, in the middle of the night, in my dream, Dennis Farina was turned around. He had a, that black suit and tie, and he was smiling at me, grinning from ear to ear. And I started to cry in my dream. I said, Dennis, I can't believe it's you. Dennis, I can't believe it's you. I can't believe it's you. And he smiled at me. He was laughing and he was with a crowd of people and he looked back and he waved at me and I woke up and I woke up and I had tears in my eyes. And I, 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 start, I talked to his, his cousin and some other people the next day about, I said, I gotta tell you this dream. And the, his cousin said, it was Dennis telling you he's okay. It's okay where he's at. I said, well, okay, maybe, maybe that's good. But Frank, every now and then, I'll dream of Frank because he was so, so, so big in my life, you know, uh, uh, it, it, it's hard to describe turning the nation in that rarefied air, you know, that every night you're on stage with Frank Sinatra, you're in the stage, you're looking at the audience, say, oh my God, there's Gregory Peck. And you know, so folks, I'm, oh, look there, that's Kirk Douglas. And you say, oh, look, <laughs> every, everywhere you went with this guy, it was like never, it was like pinch me time, you know, performing at the White House, uh, uh, at, at his home. And then for him that, you know, one time we're flying into Chicago in his private jet and, and I'm going to appear at the Chicago theater with this great legend where I used to take my shoe shine box downtown on the Illinois Central downtown to the loop and take it outside the Chicago theater and try to catch people down there because they tip better down there and catch a shine or two, right? And now I'm flying in there and he says to me, we're going to knock him dead, Tommy, we're going to the Chicago theater. This is where I was a little boy with a shine box. Now my name is on the marquee with this guy, Frank Sinatra. It, there were so many pinch me moments in my life. And, and I think you'll find that in the book that, that, uh, that you'll see that, that uh, how, how I cannot, could not fathom that this is really happening to me sometimes. I had to pinch myself. Yeah, it's, it's everyone, I think, has, has some sort of Sinatra memory or Sinatra story. And I, I have a lot. The most profound is like, I, I think I'm 19 and my brother's 15 and we're taking kind of an odyssey out west. We grew up in Buffalo, New York. And we get to Las Vegas and, and I said, well, you know, we have to see Frank Sinatra. And, well, you know, we're not old enough to go in there. Anyway, long story short, they finally let us into the midnight show. I'm not sure if it was, if I have the time correct. And they had let in too many people. It, it's midnight. And they said, we're a couple of kids. And they said, will you just go sit on the steps? You know, they have the steps in the showroom that go down. Yeah. We're sitting on the steps and the waitress comes over and she's like, you know, there's like a five drink minimum. <laughs> and we're like, oh, well. <laughs> The next thing we know, we're sitting on the steps surrounded by Cokes. There's just Cokes, like we're trapped. <laughs> we're in a Coke wall, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, Coke. We couldn't drink this much Coke. But boy, were we close to Mr. Sinatra. It was, and, and I just, 
it, it was just so vivid to me. That voice from our records at home, you know, was right there in front of me. And that was Caesar's Palace. I, I do remember it was Caesar's. I don't think you were there with him yet, Tommy. I think it was that was uh, maybe, I don't know, 1980 or something like that. that. That was just before me. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about that. This this is a living legend. How many living legends are you honestly going to meet in your life or, or be in a room with? Truly living legends. Forget about it. Frank Sinatra was was a uh, pop singer, the number one pop singer in, in, the, in, in the world. You know, forget about that. Here's a guy who won the Academy Award and never took an acting lesson. Uh, here's a guy who danced with Gene Kelly. Here's, you know, I, I was sitting with uh, one night in his compound. Uh, it was 3.30 in the morning. All the women had gone to bed and his house guests were, it were sitting there. It was Gregory Peck. It was uh, Kirk Douglas. It was Robert Wagner. It was uh, Clint Eastwood. It was Jack Lemmon. And they were talking film. And I'm fascinated. These were people I'd seen in the movies when I was a little boy, you know. And they were talking film, but they were showing such great reverence to Frank. And, and I was curious, I said, Frank, did you ever study acting? And Gregory Peck got my arm real hard. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He said, he was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. Th th this from a learned actor like Gregory Peck, when you gave Frank Sinatra a song, you know, a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? So you felt every emotion, that, that, that pain, that sorrow, that woman who's left him, and, and also the joy of every song. This was a, 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 a really a remarkable Arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. So, you know, um, you know, it, 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 for you, I can understand, uh, you know, that you have, the, that's a great memory for you, by the way. Tommy, we got to talk about the comedy store. Okay. So your, your, your rat pack, for lack of a better term, your class pre-strike was uh, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Johnny Dark, George Miller, Jeff Altman, those guys. That was that was the the class before I got here in 1980. But just before I got here was this strike that literally changed the face of stand-up comedy, and it started at the comedy store and sort of uh, ballooned out from there. Where up until that point, comedians were not paid to perform. Now they had a two-drink minimum in these clubs. They had a cover charge. The performers, the reason why people were there were not making dime one and they had to go on strike to get paid. And you came into play because, first of all, you and I, I would guess Jay Leno were the only comics at that point that had reasonable success, so you had credibility in stand-up comedy. And then you sort of became a spokesperson for the striking comedians because you had some experience running an organization of Teamsters back in Chicago and became their spokesperson. Talk about what that was like and how it ended. Because well, it was, <clears throat> it's never been the same since. Comedy yeah, story, Russ. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you've gotten a little bit mixed up, but what happened was, <clears throat> uh, first of all, Jay was not a big name at that time. Jay hadn't, hadn't uh, hit yet on The Tonight Show, even though Jay was incredibly talented. And as you know, one of the best stand-up comedians to watch work, you know. Uh, but, but he, he hadn't made his mark yet on, on national television at that time. And, um, uh, you know, and the other thing is, I didn't organize Teamsters. I was in the Teamsters when I was loading trucks back in Chicago. And after about six months, you know, of being a Teamster, I dropped my card and became management. And so I, I was now managing these, these Teamster guys that I used to work with side by side. And so I was in an arbitration and, you know, a lot of dealing with all that kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. But what happened was, as the comedy store, as you point out, became the hottest place in the country for stand-up comedians. In 1975, everywhere you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one, but you weren't one now. So how do you get to the Tonight Show? Johnny Carson left New York City in 1972 uh, to come out to the West Coast. And so all the comics merged out there to the West Coast because Freddie Prince did one appearance on the Tonight Show and got a sitcom the next day. So there was an absolute path to stardom if you could get to that Tonight Show as a stand-up comedian. One appearance on that show and your whole life changed. 26 million people watched the show. So we all migrated from all around the country. And I, the comedy team I'd been with, Tim and Tom, had just split up. I get out to the West Coast and I'm, I'm like everybody else. I'm struggling. I, I end up sleeping in an old Nash Rambler. All that's in the book, too. I, I, you know, I'm hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard. My wife and kids are in Chicago. I, I couldn't get on at the comedy, so I'm begging to work for free every night. And finally got an audition with Mitzi, which was more pressure than the first Tonight Show. Because if you fail there, you're going home. It's over. There was, there was no improv at that time in, in L.A. at that time. But anyhow, uh, when I first went out there. Now, finally, I get on at the comedy show. Now I'm doing the Tonight Show. And my career, boom, I'm off. I'm doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Danny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I'm doing all these shows. I'm touring with Sammy Davis Jr. And I'm really just making money. Uh, and I come back off the road and we always went to the original room at the comedy store where we all went up on stage about 120 people, I think, sit the seat that room. And, uh, and I, I, every time I come off the road, I would sign up for times because I wanted to work on new material for the Tonight Show. Well, I go in to, they said, yeah, you're on at such and such a time. I go in there and I'm, they said, you're in the main room. I said, the main room, Missy had, a, had bought the other half of that building. And in the main room, that's where Jackie Mason got the door. That's where uh, Rodney Dangerfield got the door. Mitzi would take the liquor and they would, whatever they charge at the door, 20 or $30, the artists would get. <clears throat> now I said, gee, I'm going in the main room. I go in the main room and I'm on stage with all these unknown comedians. You know, Robin Williams, uh, Jay Leno, uh, uh, Gallagher, uh, uh, Elaine Boosler. Um, you know, uh, you know, the girl waiting tables, I think it was Deborah Winger, you know, but I'm a, I, 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 when I was on stage that night, I thought, oh my God, this is just like working in Vegas. It was this big room, you know, afterward, we all go to Cantor's, all the comics hang out. And now they're saying, you know, the, Jay comes in, he's saying, this is all BS, man. She pays those other artists. Maybe it took five of us to fill the room, but we should all get paid. So they all decide they're going to have a meeting. I go to the meeting. I, I'm making money. I'm making six figures. I don't need this at all. But these are my friends, and, and the saying was right. So I go to this meeting. There's 100 people talking at the same time. All these comics are talking, and they're not making any sense. So they only decide to have another meeting. I go to the second meeting, and they're out of control again. You know, Gallagher's saying, maybe we should burn the place down, you know. <laughs> so finally, I said, you guys, can I chair this? Because I was in the JCs, a civic group. I know how to chair a meeting, Robert's Rules of Order. I know. So I began to organize them and organize them getting, you know, point of order, second the motion, committees, forming committees and subcommittees. And once you've got them organized, they were a force to reckon with. These are smart kids. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So <clears throat> finally they decided, would I be their spokesman and go talk to Mitzi, which I did. She simply would not pay the comedian. She, she did not want, she said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. They don't deserve to be paid. And this went on for like three weeks and the comics are getting more and more organized. And finally they were talking about going on strike. So I woke up in the middle of the night one night, <clears throat> excuse me, and I said, I got it. I don't know why I didn't think of this. 
I couldn't sleep all night long. I rushed to Mitzi's office in the morning. I say, Mitzi, I got it. I'm waiting for her when she came in. I said, you're charging $5 at the door. Charge $6 at the door. Let the comics have that $1. That's it. If you draw 200 people, they spit $200 at night. You draw 500 people, they, they spit $500, all the comics. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. That's when it stunned me that I thought it was about money. If it was about money, we could resolve this issue. It wasn't about money. It was about control. And she just did not want to pay the comics. And she thought it was comedy college and it was a privilege for them to work there and didn't deserve to be paid. Well, you know, <clears throat> there's some argument in her behalf that, that, you know, I got discovered from, from the comedy store that the tonight show came to see me, but also that there's some dignity in paying the, the comic to, to be able to go get something to eat afterward. You know, um, we thought the word cover charge meant to cover the cost of entertainment. We found out later it wasn't necessarily so, but, but um, nonetheless, it, it just seemed fair that you'd want to pay the comedians. And finally, <clears throat> they went on strike. <clears throat> and then what made me spokesman, and I've regretted it for years and years, the comics decided, uh, they had a meeting and they said, when all the media comes down there, by the way, Steve Bluestein was in charge of media and he really did a bang up job. He got everybody down there, ABC, NBC, CBS. He got everybody down there to cover this on national television as well. <clears throat> but they devoted, they said, rather than have 20 comics talking to the media and diffusing our message, let's have one comedian. And they all voted, well, Tom, Tom Dreesen. And <clears throat> believe me, I, I started to regret that uh, because now I became Jimmy Hoffa, you know, uh, and, it, and it, it became really a lot, a lot of pressure and it lasted for eight weeks. And as Weezy pointed out earlier, uh, a guy once said, I don't want to fight with Tom because he won't give up. Once I get into a fight, I don't want to give up. And, and I made it, I, I, I had five weeks of work with Sammy Davis. I had to turn down and Sammy understood it. A lot of money, you know, $50,000 that in those days was a lot of money. It, it, it's today, but I had to turn that down because I was in the fight now and we wanted to win. And it took eight weeks and, 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 and later a kid committed suicide. And it, it became a, 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 a book years later called I'm Dying Up Here by Bill Needlesheater from the LA Times. Wonderful book. It's a, it's a great yeah, book. It's a great book. A little entendre because uh, Steve committed suicide and comedians all say, I'm dying up here, you know, when it didn't work, you know. And you but know, it, it was an ugly situation. And I was letting my checks pile up at the Laugh Factory because I was in a position similar to yours, Tom. I didn't need the money. I was running a company. And then Jimmy, Jimmy Brogan said, you know, Jay says, we fought hard for those checks. You can't let your checks sit there. You're not, you're not being fair to the people that really do need that money. You need to pick up, need to pick up your check so that the club owners understand you have to pay comedians. That's, that's something very And the very thing is, that's, that's such did. a good point. And the thing is, you're not talking about a lot of money. Even though they started paying them, they were guys who were getting fifteen dollars a yeah, set. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It was so not had, a lot of money. It was you the had point. six or seven comedians making fifteen dollars a set. That's like a large tip from one table of people in one night. It wasn't like you were asking for a thousand dollars a person. And by the way, if, if if and how hard is it to add another dollar to the door? You know, right. we went on strike for for, you know. By the way, that that last night. I had to speak the night the strike ended. I had to speak before Screen Actors Guild, and uh, they asked me would uh, after and Screen Actors Guild had a big meeting. <clears throat> and they were they were having it at the Holiday Inn in Hollywood, and they asked would I come and speak for our cause. And then they asked Mitzi's loyalists, Biff Maynard and um, uh, Danny Morrow, to speak on Mitzi's behalf. 
And so I, I went with Joanne Astro <laughs> and Mark Lanau. Joanne Astro and Mark Lanau. And <clears throat> I had to give a talk and they had to give a talk. And, and uh, now the interesting thing is about four or five weeks into the strike, Mitchie decided that if you work, um, on, that she wanted to pay the comedians only on the weekends, $25 a set. And so I brought it back. I said, okay, I brought it back to the membership. You guys want to do that? And then you can't, don't get paid during the week, but you, can, you get paid on weekends. And they voted against it because they said, anytime there's a cover charge, we should be paid, you know. So they turned it down. But meanwhile, those who crossed the picket line, 19 people crossed the picket line, 18 guys and one girl. <clears throat> and those who crossed the picket line were getting $25 a set on weekends. So I get up and, and I'm, I'm, I give my talk. Then Biff Maynard gets up and Biff Maynard says, artists, comedians don't need to be paid. Comedians are artists and artists don't need to be paid. And he's talking to a room full of artists. <laughs> I'm listening to this. And then I had to rebut that. I got up and I said to the audience, I said, look, we need you. This has gone on for eight weeks. Uh, I don't know how much longer we can hold on. I said, but uh, this gentleman just told you that artists don't need to be paid. But because we were on strike after four weeks, they decided to pay on weekends. I said, so this man who just told you that we don't need to be paid, you know what he did last weekend? He worked the comedy store and they gave him $50. You know what he did with that $50? He went out tonight and he had dinner. Then he put gas in his car to drive over here and tell you not to pay us. <laughs> and, and it, Perfect. It got like a standing yeah. ovation. And people were cheering and everything. And afterward, the, the president of Screen Actors who came with me and said, we'll take a full page ad out in Hollywood Reporter and in Screen Actors, I mean in um, Variety, to... I tell we ask all of our artists not to go into the comedy store while you're on strike. So Biff heard that, and I go back to the comedy store. The people are walking the picket line, and I Biff comes pulling up in front of the comedy store. He's pointing um, west, and I'm sorry, pointing east, and uh, and he's racing his engine, waiting for the traffic to go by. Well, they were in in the alleyway there, by the, alongside the comedy store. Some of the comics, and I said, "Hey, you guys, you're not supposed to be in that driveway. You're not supposed to be." In that. And I hear, hum, 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 and he turns his car, feels rubber into those people. And I hear, boom, and Jay Leno hits the ground and the girls start crying and screaming, he hit Jay, he hit Jay. Now he pulls in the back and slams on his brake. Jay's laying on the ground. And by that time I was ready to kill somebody. I had had it with this whole bullshit. I couldn't take it anymore. I made up my mind when Biff comes around this corner, I'm gonna punch him and hit him as hard as anybody ever hit in my life. I had it, I couldn't take it anymore. And I'm, I'm telling there's no cell phones in noise. I'm telling me, call an ambulance, call an ambulance. Now I kneel down by Jay and I look down and I said, Jay, Jay. And he opened his one eye and he winked at me and he put his head back down. <laughs> I said, you son of a bitch. Oh, that's great. You son of a bitch. I can't believe. I said, and anyhow, what it was, was Jay hit the car with the side of his hand, with his hand when the car went by and he made it sound like he got hit. Now, when Biff comes down the car and the girls are screaming and you hit Jay, you I did not, I didn't mean to, I didn't, you know, anyhow. Ambulance comes out. Jay, nothing's wrong with Jay. Jay wants to be let go, but they can't do that. The ambulance, only the hospital can let you go. So they, they, they haul Jay away in the, in the ambulance. And now moments later, Mitchie's, uh, I think it was Argus, came out and said, uh, Tom, Mitchie wants to talk to you. And I went inside. She said, let's end this thing right now. And, I, and we stayed up till 4.30 that morning and the strike wow. was over. That is... It, it was a crazy time, and now they got paid, and, and it sort of spread to the improv after that. Improv was newer, and they weren't paying right, and then that forced the improv to pay. What happened? What happened to the improv? Um, and this is in the book too. In, in the, they, Bud Friedman, when we were going to pick it, but by that time the improv was open. Bud said, "Tom, if you got," uh, he said, 
uh, first of all, somebody threw a Molotov cocktail on top of the roof of, of, uh, of uh, the improv. I know who did it. We all knew who did it, but, um, uh, and, and burned the improv down and, and it burned the back down. And Bud King goes, said, Tom, if you go on strike, he said, I could still put comedy in the front of my building while I'm rebuilding. If you strike me, I'll never be able to get going again. I said, but no one wants a strike. No one wants it. If you'll sign a memo that says you agree to pay the comics after it's over with, uh, then, then I guarantee he said, I'll sign it. And he did. And so we all, when we walked the picket line, we would tell people you can go over to improv because he's going to pay us in, in, in the future. Anyhow. And Jamie opened the Laugh Factory during that time period as well, Tom? Yeah, right right at around that time, Jamie, and, and, and started paying the comics right from the beginning. Yeah. To this day, Jamie Masada pays more than anybody else. You know, by the way, some people say now that the comedy store, we struck for $25. I think they're paying $12.50, and the improv is paying like $7.50. And now comedy's changed so much. Now listen to this, and you all know this. For people who are listening and don't know, if you – want to get a 20 minute spot at a comedy club now all you have to do is bring 20 people they'll pay 20 dollars a person and then the two drink minimum so that's about 400 dollars on door charges and then they'll spend another couple hundreds so you're paying like six or seven hundred dollars to do 20 minutes <laughs> and burning yeah. through all your friends yeah. Yeah. yeah you can only ask about it no more than twice all right so i have to ask you tom are you currently in possession of any sweet sinatra swag oh you know i, I mean i bet the, the watch he gave me, he gave me a, after 10 years, he gave me a Cartier watch with an engagement. I'm not talking about watches. I'm talking about like matchbooks or just cool stuff that you'd stick in your pockets because you stayed for, for the weekend at, at his ranch, right? Oh, you just mean that stuff kind of, did I ever, you should put it the right way you meant it. Did you ever steal anything from his house? <laughs> was no, like napkins that say, you know, Frank. No. Yeah. No. I, I, no, I mean, I've got, I've got so many photographs with us on stage and the things we did together and at parties and stuff. I, no, I never, I, I will tell you the first time I see that is compound. I, you know, every room had a watch line and, and I, I called everybody in, in, that I knew ever in America and said, yes, where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, uh, so Tom's book is still standing. It's a fantastic book. Even if you're outside of show business, it's just a great book about survival it's a great book about an American success story about a really nice guy who maintained his moral center uh, and when he made it to the top of show business. I've always valued your friendship. But before you go, you need to tell the story about Frank saving Johnny Carson's life. It's the best story in the book. You want me to tell that story? Should we I want you. Up? No, I want you to tell. I'll tease him. You don't don't give away everything, but just give the give the skeleton of the story because it's mind blowing. Okay. By the way, you got to go to Amazon.com, and that's how you get the book. They'll have it delivered to your house in two days. If they <laughs> Amazon. Well, Henry Bushkin tried to take credit. I would have never told this story, but I read his book, and he tried to take credit for, for saving Johnny from a mob hit from a guy named Crazy Joey Gallo. But Frank Sinatra's bodyguard, Julie Rizzo, told me a story, and three weeks later, Frank told me the same story verbatim of what really happened. And I truly believe both of them because no one, could have stopped crazy Joey Gallo. No lawyer, no young lawyer was going to stop crazy Joey Gallo because he was, that's why he had his nickname, crazy Joey Gallo. He, he, he defied the five families of New York, the five Dons of New York. You know, there's a Don of Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, you know, um, the island, you know, he, he, he defied them. He didn't pay any attention to what the, the, head, the five families said to him. He did whatever he wanted to do. And, and he, his nickname was crazy Joey Gallo because I think he killed his first guy at 17, you know, and he had a violent temper. 
And Johnny Carson, uh, who, who I love, Johnny Carson, but by his own admittance, Johnny was not a good drinker. A couple of drinks and he would be like a high school sophomore sometimes. So when Johnny was in New York with the Tonight Show, he was brand new. And he was just a new star, you know, a new national star. And uh, he had done a game show and stuff like that, but he was still becoming a new national star. And in those days, Julie's, Julie had a bar on West 48th Street, the theater district, and all the cops and the robbers hung out there, all the big stars and the FBI and the mob guys, everybody hung out there. And uh, Johnny went in there one night, not knowing the two girls at the bar were with crazy Joey Gallo. And Joey, Joey was in the back room. And Johnny went in there, had a few drinks, and he snuck up behind one of the girls and gave her a little grab by the rear end, and, and she let out a blood-curdling scream. And Joey jumped over the bar and told, grabbed Ed McMahon and Johnny and said, get, get him out of here, get him out of here fast. So they rushed him out, and the girl kept screaming. She couldn't stop screaming. And Joey Gallo finally comes out of the back room, and she was hyperventilating now. And he's going, what's wrong? What's wrong? And finally, he had to slap her to get her back. She said, Johnny Carson reached up and grabbed me in the back, you know. And um, he sent the two guys. He said, find him. And I'm not going to tell you because the book is a real graphic, what he says to do to Johnny. It's really graphic what he said. It'll make your hair stand on end because he meant it. Find him and do this to him, you know. And, and then he turned on Jilly and told Jilly, how dare you, man? You let this, this metagon, you know, an, an Italian uh, if you're talking about a non-Italian, you say Medigan because the old Italians couldn't say American. They would say, he's a Medigan, meaning he's an American, you know. So it wasn't a, a, a dirty word, you know. But he said, you let this Medigan, you know, grab my, my, uh, my gumad, you know. <laughs> anyhow, Chili uh, said, I didn't see it, I didn't know. And anyhow, this, this all goes down and they couldn't find Johnny that night. Now the word is all over the city that Johnny's a dead man. And so um, Dave Tebbett from NBC went to Jilly and asked Jilly if he could interfere. And Jilly said, I can't talk to Joey Gallo. The five dons of New York can't talk to him. And he said, you asked Frank to do it. Would you ask Frank? And Frank, when Jilly went to Frank, Frank said the same thing. He said, the five dons of New York can't talk to him. You want me to talk to him? And anyhow, about a week later, Frank said, the word's out that Johnny's a dead guy. And a week later, Joey Gallo goes to the, see the show uh, with Frank Sinatra. And he brings his family, two tables of people. And he brings his mother backstage and Frank takes pictures and autographs and all that. And as everybody leaves the dressing room, Joey Gallo's in the room alone with Frank and Jilly. And they both told this story verbatim. And he said, Joey Gallo said, you know, Francesco, he called him Cheech. He said, Cheech, what you did for my family, I'll never, ever, ever forget how you treated my mother. And I want you to know if you ever need anything, anything, you ask me. And Frank, there's something, you know, he's got his hands like this in front of Frank's face. He said, it, it, he said, it, it, anything. Frank said, yeah, there's something. He goes, name it. And Frank said, Johnny Carson. And he grabbed John, Frank's mouth and held Frank's mouth like this. And he's holding it hard, so hard that Jilly said that when he took his hands off of his face, you could see the fingerprints inside of his face. And he, he's holding his mouth. He said, you stick up for that blah, 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 who did this to my mind. And Frank said, he didn't know she was with you. He said, I don't care. I don't care who, who, who anybody, that he, with any woman. Who's he think he is? He's got a TV show. He can do that. He's a dead man. And Frank said, Joey, you ask me. He said, he would come to you right now on his hands and knees. He, he would beg your forgiveness on his hands and knees right now. He said, he knows you're a man of respect. He said, but he's terrified because he knows what you want to do. He said, you asked me if I needed anything. And that's a favor to give the kid a break. And they, they said, uh, Jilly told the story and Frank did too, that Joey Gallo, he just paced and paced and paced and paced in the dressing room. And finally he walked to the door and he opened up the dressing room door and he turned around before he walked out and he said, 
you go tell Johnny Carson that he breathes because he knows Frank Sinatra. And he went like this, like blackjack dealers do. It's done, you know, and he shut the door. Oh, jeez. What a story. I love that. Wow. And I believe that with all my heart and soul. Oh, yeah. Frank told me that, and so did Jimmy, that that's how it really, really went down. You know? We love talking to you, my friend. It's good to see you again. You too, Fritz. Thanks Very for the great stories. Thank you so much, Tommy. It was so great having you with us. Come back anytime and uh, bring more stories. And uh, we want to know before we go, like when you head down a media path and you get obsessed with a subject and you can't read enough or watch enough about it, what is, what is that subject currently? Oh, what am I currently obsessed with? You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm reading a, a funny, uh, not a, I'm reading a, a, a little short story about John L. Sullivan. Uh, the bare knuckle fighters back in the in, in the day. You know, I boxed when I was in the Navy. Uh, you know, I'm not a tough guy, but I, I boxed, and, and I couldn't fathom these bare knuckle guys going 20 and 30 and 40 rounds, and and, and, and Jack Johnson 103 rounds or something in Cuba, bare knuckled. You know, and so oh, I'm reading about how that all began, and and the places they hound in New York, and it's it's kind of uh, kind of got to me, you know, and uh, you know. Any, any, I, I'm afraid to start a book because I'm, I love to read. And once I start reading a book, then I don't, you know, I'll be up till three in the morning going on one more chapter, one more chapter, you know. Well, that's what we, we did with your book. It was, it's so delicious. It's and really I good. It's a wonderful, it. wonderful book. It's not just a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, wisdom. It's also great stories. And if you're a Sinatra fan and you need to consume everything Sinatra, this book must be uh, on your list. You, you finish the book and then you just fire up Sinatra on Spotify and you just kind of float because it, it just puts you where you want to be. So I deeply appreciate you, Tom, and your friendship. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Well, I love you both. You're, you're old friends for a long time. You, Fritz, you weren't there, but Weezy said to me, um, but something about, you know, was Sammy Davis Jr. the first big star you ever opened for? And I said, no, once at the comedy store, I opened for Fritz. <laughs> that, that well, was- I, I've told many people the story. And you talked about Dennis Farina. And Dennis was with you on a couple of these occasions. I would love to go into the improv before a set and sit at Bud's table, that round table in the corner, especially if you were there. And I wouldn't say anything. I would just sit there and listen to the best show business anecdotes ever. And it made me so excited. And I convinced myself that I was part of show business and I couldn't wait to go on stage and perform. It was always fun and you were always awesome, even to people with less experience. And I'll never forget you for it. You're a good man. Good to talk to you, bud. You too. Love you both. Take care. Okay, see you, man. Thank Thank you you. so much. We are Mediapath. I'm Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Our producer is Dina Friedman. Our esteemed staff includes Francesco Demanda, Thomas Hubble, Bill Filipiak, John Maddox, Mosey Masenko. We are Mediapath, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye.